I'm Brittany Hardin-Tangway, a manager with KPMG, and I am fascinated by the practice of transfer pricing and its impact on the global market. Join me each episode as I explore the transfer pricing world with specialists who will explain the ins and outs of this niche practice where tax meets economics. We're continuing our industry series, Trek with Tech. That's right. Talking about technology. I'm excited to welcome back to the show, David Unger, Managing Director in our KPMG Seattle office. Hey there. Good afternoon. Happy to have you. As well as Brad Parker, Principal from our Silicon Valley office and also the U.S. Transfer Pricing Leader for the technology industry. Hello. Thanks for having me on. I brought you both here to chat about transfer pricing in the technology industry, given both of your depths of experience in that area. And I I think there's some different considerations and flavors to transfer pricing within this industry. Brad, will you help give us a background? Yeah. So how to define the technology industry itself is a little bit tricky because it used to be there were traditional tech companies in Silicon Valley and then there was everybody else. But nowadays, most quote unquote traditional companies have a technology component to them. And so a lot of the transfer pricing issues that that we grew up figuring out and helping to solve in the technology space are becoming more and more relevant across all industries because a lot of different companies now have valuable intangible property. A lot of companies now have contract R&D, research development that they've got to do transfer pricing for. And so some of these issues that we've traditionally looked at as technology industry transfer pricing issues are really just nowadays ubiquitous transfer pricing issues. Yeah, like what's the limit to a tech company? If you're manufacturing a car, thinking back to one of our previous episodes of exploring transfer pricing, there's some super technical elements and it involves so much computer science and programming. Even in traditional industries like farming, there has been such an overlay of technology, whether it's baking or manufacturing like you described. There are so many components of technology, it's really hard to separate industries from the technology that they're now engendering. And that to say, what is the transfer pricing associated with the technology industry is to say, what are the transfer pricing challenges that every industry is now facing? The OECD tried to take a look at the digital economy. Companies had these digital service taxes popping up around the world, and the OECD was trying to say, okay, how do we think about the technology industry and how do we tax them differently from everyone else? And I think they kind of ran into a lot of problem there ring fencing it because technology is so ubiquitous across all industries these days. Brad, you mentioned the digital services tax. And when you think about how these technology-based companies, they have these installed user bases or maybe they're selling all over the globe, but they're really not present physically with salespeople maybe in a given location or service provision in a given location. How do we get around the idea that these tech companies aren't just everywhere ubiquitously? It's an interesting question, and I think the digital services taxes try then are trying to tax companies where they don't have a presence, and it is kind of a new taxation right that these governments are trying to implement where, let's say you have a technology company, you've got an installed user base in a country, but you have zero presence there. You can't just use traditional transfer pricing methods because it turns out you don't have any employees in that country. And so there's this new taxation that is being talked about how then do you tax these. So there's things underway under BEPS, they're calling it base erosion profit shifting 2.0, where they're trying to come up with different ways of taxing companies. That's right, Brad. It's moved beyond just traditional digital companies. We have another episode in our series about Pillar 1 and Pillar 2 that talks just about this. I think it's interesting also that it used to be that when you sold something, 
you sold a product, you sold a good, maybe it was tangible, maybe it was relatively intangible, it was a piece of artwork or it was a recording of something. But now with social media being as it is, there's so many companies that we are the product mm -hmm. and they are selling back our data to us or our interest. There's an algorithm that just keeps feeding us the interesting content that keeps us there. So I am the product. Mm -hmm. And how do you tax me for being me? France, a uh, proponent of these digital services taxes originally, they say, hey, you've got French citizens. They are doing these things. They are engaging on this platform. That means that their data is valuable. But how do you tax the companies for using what is otherwise a free service? They're just being advertised to. Which that gets back to the idea of you want to tax the value. And I think you historically think of value creation. You think of the creator, right? So in a right. more traditional setup, you're creating and you're distributing and you're making this available. But the shift over time, the networks are what becomes the value creator. So then all of a sudden you are a user and also simultaneously you are what was created valuable. The creation sort of shifts to you. So then does that taxing shift to you? But it's really unclear because the lines are a bit Blurry. They are, and it is difficult. The taxation rules around the world are trying to catch up, and some countries have gone ahead and implemented these digital services taxes, and others are playing this kind of wait-and-see game on how exactly BEPS 2.0 shakes out, and then they'll repeal their digital services taxes if and when that comes to fruition. But I think, needless to say, it's a difficult problem that they're trying to tackle. And right now, what companies have to do is, well, they have to do two things. I guess they have to follow the current laws that are on the books, and they have to think about and prepare themselves for what's coming in the future. Let's talk a little bit about the considerations and issues for technology. We could say the technology industry, but <laughs> if we think about things being arm's length and up to the border, the borders here are obviously as fuzzy as everything else. What are some of the issues that you run into with technology and transfer pricing? A couple of them are intangible property or intellectual property. Traditionally, in the technology industry, you think of a software company and who is the owner of the technology, and then therefore the non-routine returns would then go to the entity that owns the technology. Thinking about all of that, and then now we're talking about some even more interesting and modern issues like the network <laughs> intangibles and other things that are maybe a little bit more difficult to kind of get your hands around and difficult for tax authorities to tax. But traditionally, I would say the big ones are the intellectual property. And within that, it's how do you create it and who owns it, who creates it, who controls it, and then therefore, how does it get taxed? And also when you transfer it around, if you buy an Israeli company and then you need to transfer those intangible property rights back to the U.S., for example, what is the value of that IP that you transferred? So I'd say those are kind of the big ones. Any other things that you'd add there, David? You make a good point about the ownership of those intangibles. And maybe if we give an example, maybe in the past, I keep contrasting this with the past, but just to sort of differentiate the technology industry from maybe more routine or traditional industries of the past, you might think they did research in a given place. And then they said, let's go out to the shop floor and build the thing. And then that prototype becomes the new product and then we sell it. But with the advent of the internet and very attenuated supply chains, you might have an R&D group working under a U.S. group, which has a European group, and they kind of follow the sun. And so product is being developed globally all the time. And who's the major domo? 
who's the master of the supply chain and who owns it contractually when people around the globe have been working on a solution. And then let's say that's a piece of IP to deliver food. We're going to have a website and the drivers around the globe will be able to pick up food and deliver it to people. So then the question is in this new paradigm, who's the customer? I might think if I get the food delivery, I'm the customer, but it may be that the customer for that app is actually the driver. The user is the person on the ground getting the food. It's disruptive to think of the way in which technology has changed the idea of customer. And then back onto that, maybe they say, hey, we're going to develop a robot. It's going to take the place of the driver. So you've just done away with your customer to only to have a user and you've insourced that. Think about all the different ways that you have disrupted the whole structure and you built your company to be disruptive. That is the nature of technology today that transfer pricing has to try to get a grip on. That's the commonality of technological development anyway, right? It shouldn't be a surprise that tax professionals every day were talking about disruption to the business operations and how that's impacting taxes. And it all kind of stems from the massive advances we've made in technology and how it has become common across all industries. Another example we can discuss is a fairly common scenario where you have an R&D center, let's say in India, that is performing R&D for a U.S. headquarter company. The India entity is not doing any third-party selling, but you might have 10,000 engineers in India cranking out some really great designs that go into the products that end up being sold all around the world. And so how does India pay tax when it's just a cost center, there's no revenue? It's paid on a cost plus basis, and all of the intangibles that they create are then owned by the parent company, the entity that is hiring them. And then they get an arm's length return for their R&D functions that they do. So I think it's important to be able to articulate that and to explain that to people to understand how are you paying tax in India to the extent that you don't have your transfer pricing done well and you get an audit and an adjustment in India, your tax in India could just double. Double? It could triple, quadruple. And that's why it's important to recognize and describe the correct functions performed, assets held, risks assumed by the Indian R&D entity so that they're being paid for the costs incurred to perform the work, plus an appropriate markup, so that they're earning a fair profit and that that profit is taxed accordingly. So thinking about the future, what should taxpayers and companies that work in the tech industry or with significant technological components and beyond sort of be thinking about? The first thing to think about is that transfer pricing is in a way central to all tax, all international trade taxation. It used to be you'd have a tax on product that was shipped in. And since now we're talking about these platforms and softwares and things that are software as a service, since they don't get imported, transfer pricing is the only way that many times a tax authority can get their hands on a company. And I say get their hands on, not that they're necessarily being overly aggressive, but it's just that if you're going to tax a company in your jurisdiction, you're going to have to look at all these economic rights. And you're also going to have to think about if a country is trying to implement rules, yeah, they may share the concepts, but there are different levels of knowledge about how to implement those things. They also have a limited number of economists or accountants or officers who may be able to deal with these things. And so it's going to be challenges to explaining all of this in a clear layman's form to any of these tax authorities. And clients are going to be challenged with trying to have a clear way of expressing the economic value that they're bringing in any given jurisdiction. 
Yeah, totally agree. It's a really interesting time right now with BEPS 2.0, especially. I think there's going to be an increasing focus on the consumer as the value creator. If I'm the person as a customer posting something on a social media platform and I created the cat video and my cat video goes viral, you'd think, oh, then David is the value creator. But in some way, it's all the people who are following me that the content platform allowed me to link to. That's what made it valuable. Yeah, exactly. They shared it. They used their platform to help your cat video go viral. (laughs) Right. Their influence and thus why they're called influencers creates value. The fact that the company is present in a given jurisdiction is sort of besides the point because Mm -hmm. I could be in France or I could be in Malta or I could be in Sierra Leone and I could see the cat video no matter what. But Mm -hmm. my presence there has economic knock-on effects in that local jurisdiction. How then do you tax me? How do you create Mm -hmm. a taxation system that recognizes the cat video as valuable, but the network intangible around it as the real overarching thing, which I think really, when you come right down to it, it's this cats provide most of the value in the economy. And if we don't (laughs) acknowledge that now, when they become our overlords, then it is going to be dangerous. We need to think about that now. Tax the, the cats. cats. Tax cats That's now. the big takeaway from this. I think it is. I but know no. that Washington National Tax doesn't like us to talk about that, but I think we it bears be honest about this. Secrets out. The tax the cats. So. But to me, that's the big takeaway. Transfer pricing brings the world together. I mean, social media brings the world together. There was no way that transfer pricing wasn't going to have to evolve to meet the needs and the demands of the modern world in which borders aren't so clear. And so I think... Where value creation is is blurry, where what's arm's length seems to get a little bit blurry. We're all just doing our best. (laughs) That's right. right. And by the way, how to value intangible property has always been and continues to be and is becoming more blurry (laughs) than ever. Every time I'm working on a different case, there are just more and more iterations and more imperfections in all methods. And the more you think you have it figured out, this is the best method to value this intangible property. One of the big takeaways is there is a lot of uncertainty in this world of transfer pricing. Not least of that is valuation of intangible property, but also just how to tax regular everyday functions and everyday business that needs to be taxed around the world, like David mentioned. Well, thank you so much, Brad and David, for joining me today. I think we'll have plenty more to talk about on this topic going forward. Great. Fantastic. Look forward to it. No, thanks, Brittany. It was great being on with you all and appreciate it. Thanks for joining me on this adventure in transfer pricing. See you next time.